Dear friends, let's look once again to Luke chapter 11. We'll be walking through verses 1 through 4 this morning. Let's go ahead and look at that passage, Luke 11 and verses 1 through 4. And it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And when he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. We dealt previously in the first sermon over the Lord's Prayer, over the first word within the Lord's Prayer. And I was especially encouraged by John MacArthur's commentary on this particular passage to spend more time than just one sermon on this passage. And I was greatly blessed and encouraged by what he wrote within his commentary. And we spent some time in the first sermon talking about the term Father, the fact that in prayer you are speaking to God and you are calling God Father and the imminence of God that is there, the way in which God is there with you as one who has reached out to you, but you have here as well in this first petition, hallowed be your name. And this is a picture here of God's transcendence, his, his you could say his far-offness, his distinctness, his differentness. That's something that must be remembered in prayer. It must be remembered in times of worship that God is altogether different from you. He is distinct from you, even in attributes that you may share, even in attributes you have, such as mercy or love. You have those. God has shared those with you. You communicate in those attributes to others because they've been shared with you from God. But even in the way in which you show love and you show mercy and you show justice is distinct from God who has these attributes in a very perfect way way. But have you ever pondered what what is happening in in prayer? What are we doing when we pray? We can have very misunderstood and distorted views on prayer. Some will even criticize Reformed theology. They'll criticize the Reformed faith. Have you ever had someone say to you, why do you bother praying to God if He has decreed whatsoever will come to pass? Have you ever had someone say to you, why do you bother praying for the lost if God is sovereign? You know, and that sounds very wise until it's considered, until it is cross-examined, because the same question can be asked to that same person, why bother praying if God is not sovereign? What exactly are you praying for? Who exactly are you praying to? If God is not sovereign, if He is not all-powerful, then why do you pray? But we know God is sovereign. We confess that. We believe that. We, we trust in that reality. But what exactly is happening in prayer? What, what are you doing when you are praying to God? Are you causing God to change in some way? Are you hoping that God will change his mind, or, or maybe he will do something different than what he was already going to do? Are we in our prayer causing God to act? Are you 
don't quickly want to say yes to that, do you? Those are areas where you want to cautiously tread because there's other things we know about God. God is immutable. God does not change. God is not one that can be acted upon from one who is outside of him. God is the great actor. He is the great mover. He is the one that moves that which is outside of him. He is the one that changes that which is outside of him. He's not one who is acted upon from those who are outside of him. He has brought all things into existence. And yet we are commanded to pray. It is important that we pray. It is a blessing and an honor that we pray but what is the purpose? What, what are we doing? What is happening in this activity? Others will make this consideration. They will say, look, prayer is not really for God. It's not about God when you pray. It's about you. It's about God working within you. God has decreed what he's going to do, and the prayer that you bring to God is about you and God changing you. Therefore, prayer is primarily about us, according to this perspective. It's not, it is God acting and moving in our lives and changing us through prayer. Well, that statement is partially true. That statement is partially correct. That is definitely true in regard to the effects of prayer. Prayer is effectual upon the person that prays. It is beneficial for the person that prays. It is beneficial for those that the person is even praying for. But I would encourage us in this perspective, when we ask this, to take a bit more of a Sunday school answer here and say it in this way, that prayer is primarily for God. It's primarily for the purpose of God. It's primarily for the glory of God. And we can remember this, that the opportunity we have for prayer, the opportunity we have in bringing prayers to the Lord is on account of Christ and what Christ has done, his finished work, that veil, remember, that was torn when Christ died between the holy place and the most holy place. And we can know that God is using our prayers. In God's decree, he has so determined that he will bring things to pass. And one of the means he uses in bringing things to pass is the prayers of his people, the prayers of his saints. He's not moved by them, but part of what he is doing includes the prayers of his people and bringing forward what it is that he is going to do. He has included you in that, dear saints. He has included your prayers in that. This can be difficult for some of you. This is difficult for some with certain personalities. You, you may not feel like you're doing something. I need to go and act. I need to go and act in some way, and we do need to be people who act, people who, who move. But even when you're, you're, you're not moving, consider this. Consider this reality. You say, well, it doesn't really matter whether or not I pray or not. God is going to do what he's going to do. Well, the same follows true with the actions that you do. God is going to do what God is going to do, but God has so chosen to use you, dear saints, you are incorporated into his decree, and it very much matters what you do. It very much matters how you live your life. It very much matters how you act. It has 
many times generational impacts. You impact people into the future, which you are completely unaware of even now. What we do matters. And what we do is a part of what God has determined He will do. We don't have to figure out how God does what God does. We don't even have to fully understand why God does all that He does. We can just trust that He does it for His own glory. And He is good, and He is kind, and He has shown His love to us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Prayer is just another means that the Lord is using to accomplish His purpose. He has ordained the ends as well as the means. He has ordained the ends as well as the means. And so even in the salvation of a person, even in their salvation and them coming to faith in Christ, the Lord uses even the prayers of His people, people praying. How many of you have had parents that have prayed for you? How many of you were lost in rebellion? You had a mother praying for you. There's the famous story of St. Augustine's mother who was praying for him for many, many years. We don't have to speculate how this works. We don't have to fully understand how it works. We can trust the Lord in His goodness. I want us to consider this first petition that we have here, because last time we talked about God's eminence and how we see His eminence there in the word Father, and the, the beauty that is there that we can call God Father, that, that we as those that are in Christ Jesus, have been adopted into the family of God, the greatness and significance of this reality. But the next phrase that we have is, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And it is a declaration in this prayer. And it should be a declaration in any prayer that we are giving, even if we're not saying those specific words. But it is a declaration of the totality of all that God is, everything that it is to be God that is communicated in hallowed be your name. May you be respected as holy. John MacArthur makes this point. He says, viewing God both as Father and as sacred preserves the balance between His transcendence and His eminence, between His compassionate love and His majestic glory, and between intimacy with Him and reverence for Him. We must have that. We must have a reverence for God. And it's not a reverence that, oh, He is so far off and He's going to smite us out at any moment. No, there is intimacy there as well. That Christ has come, that Christ has laid His life down for us, that Christ came and dwelt among us. He clothed Himself in flesh. Christ has earned this for us. Christ has granted this to us. But simultaneously, we, we also must see God in His glory, in His holiness. His name is set apart. He is distinct. We even see that in the architecture of the tabernacle and the different portions that were there as you had this outer court and then a holy place and then a most holy place. This was communicating something about God but at the same time, that tabernacle was there amongst the people, and God was displaying His glory there amongst the people. And you saw even His closeness there amongst the people, that He had chosen 
this people out of all the peoples within the earth to be his people. And he was dwelling with him there in a special, in a particular way that was unlike the way in which he was dwelling with anyone else on the earth. Even more so for you, dear Christian. We see that even there in his holiness, in his highness. We see that there upon the cross in, in the righteousness in the righteous requirement that was required in the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, but we see the closeness there as well. We especially see that, dear Christian, in the Spirit of God that has been granted to you. This earnest payment that has been given to you, this is a, a, a earnest payment looking forward to what Christ will do even in the future, as we sang earlier, that there will come a time, and we long for the time, and we look forward to the time when the church will be gathered together the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the church will be gathered together from a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That great multitude will be gathered together, and they will sin no more. Praise be to God for all He is doing and all He has shared with us, and may He bless us in seeing this reality of what we see in this term, hallowed be your name. So, let's, let's consider the name of God when, when we say, hallowed be your name, what, what, what do we mean? What, what are we speaking of? So there's two questions I want to answer as we walk through this and consider this. And consider this as something that should inform all of our prayer. It should inform all of our lives. The question is, what is the name of God? We have hallowed be your name, but what do we mean by the name of God? And secondly, how do we hallow God's name? How do we respect and honor God's name? We have the warning in the third commandment. We see that in Exodus 20 and verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is the, the third commandment. And we see within the catechism the question, what is required in the third commandment? It says, the third commandment requireth holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. The next question is, what is forbidden in the third commandment? The third commandment forbiddeth all profaning and abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. And this is of great, great importance the Scriptures talk about the name of the Lord, trusting in the name of the Lord, trusting in all that God is, trusting in what God has revealed about Himself. Psalm 20 and verse 7 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord God. Jesus even tells us this in John 14 and verse 13 and 14. He says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And the key there is asking in His name. Your prayer will always be answered if you pray according to the name of God, if you pray according to the will of God. Not my will, but your will, O God. Hugh Malinsky makes this point. He says, it is a prayer that God shall be God, that man shall not whittle God down to a manageable size and shape. And, and that is the temptation there. That is the temptation is to just make God manageable or to make God small or to put God 
into a box. The Scriptures allow us not to do that. The totality of the Scriptures allow us not to whittle God down and make Him small and comfortable. Leon Morris says this, it refers to all that God is and has revealed of Himself and asks for a proper attitude in the face of this. So true prayer, coming to the Lord in prayer, begins therefore with a proper understanding of God. It requires a correct thinking about Him. In some of the ways we see God's names uh, categorized in the Scriptures communicate to us about who He is. We have aspects that talk about Him being one who is to be, or the one who is, or the one who has always been. We see that with Yahweh in Exodus chapter 6, and Yah in Psalm 68, I am who I am, as He spoke to Moses. God is the one who is. It's a declaration of His eternity. It is a declaration that He is and always has been and always will be, one who is not changing, which is, which is a good thing. For God is a solid rock. God is a, a mighty fortress. God is one you can build your life upon, one you can trust in. He, he's not like the world. He's not like the culture. He's not changing from day to day. He's not like us who may go from one extreme to another. God is, and He always has been. He's not like the false gods of this world He's not like the false gods of this world that, that have their derivation from something within the creation, a god of the river or, or a god of the mountain or a god of the sun. We have other times God's name is described to declare His power or His strength. We see that with the term El in Isaiah 9-6, Eloah in Psalm 18, Elohim in, in Genesis 1-26, His power and His strength, God who is all-powerful all power that even exists within the world, you go and you look into the solar system and you see these, these massive stars, some stars so great that they would expand from where our sun is all the way past the earth's orbit, that enormity of size and power burning and burning and burning. And we can look at such power in the creation and say, but God... But God brought that great star into creation, brought that star into existence. The times we see God's government and sovereignty declared in His name, Adonai in Psalm 2-4, Shaddai in Genesis 17-2, Lord of hosts in 1 Samuel 4-4, His sovereign rule over all creation, one who is outside of what He has made, outside of what has been made, one who is not contained and to remember that in going to Him in prayer, that regardless of how great your pain or your struggle is, God is outside of that. He is not contained within it. He is sovereign even over that. He is a firm foundation that you can trust in. Lastly, we see even in His glory in a name, in the Most High, in Psalm 9 and verse 2. God, in these names that are shared with us, is declaring to us something about Himself and He's doing that for His glory, and He's also doing this that you can be trusting in Him. They reveal His identity. They, they, they reveal aspects of His, his glory and his, his attributes, his, his rule and his, 
His reign. We see this in terms like Jehovah Jireh in Genesis 22, 14. The Lord will provide. He is one who meets the needs of His children, who gives to His children what they need. He is the source of all provision. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. He is the king. He is the great ruler. He is the sovereign over the universe. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord of peace. Jehovah Roy, the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah Shabbat, the Lord of hosts. Each of these is declaring something particular about God, and this is something that you can remember in prayer and going to God, that He is the source of healing. He is the source of righteousness. He is the source of peace. And even beautiful, we see in the New Testament the names given to our Lord Jesus Christ. These terms, many of them were given, were spoken of God in the Old Testament, are similarly spoken of our Lord Christ Jesus. He is called the Amen. He is called the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. A, the same thing was spoken of God in the Old Testament, but He's also the, the advocate. He's the author and He's the perfecter of our faith. He was the one that was there in the beginning. We see that in Revelation 3, 14. He is the bread of life, the author of our salvation. He is the cornerstone. He is our counselor. He is our deliverer. He is God blessed forever. He is eternal father, as we see in Isaiah 9, 6. And not understanding that to mean that he is God the father, but he is, he is, he is the source from which eternity is, is gained. He is the means from which God has granted eternity. He is the father of eternity, you could even say. Like Henry Ford is the father of the automobile. It's from him that the modern automobile came into existence. He is the source through which eternity is given. He is the first and the last, the firstborn from the dead, the head of the church. We could go on and on of his many, many names that are given. And our understanding of each and every one of these names is a reminder of who He is and what He does for His people. We must remember this in our prayer. We must remember the highness and the greatness of the name of God, that He has declared Himself to us. He has spoken things about Himself to us. And He has spoken these things to us out of a love for us to share Himself with us to share Himself with His people, sharing Himself in these many, many ways that we can grow in a greater knowledge of Him. And it's in this trust, in this knowledge of what He has shared with us, that we go to Him with a greater knowledge of who that He is. It's the name of God. His name must be praised. His name must be hallowed even. But what does it mean to hallow the name of of God? How, how do we hallow God's name? How do we show reverence for God's name? I think the first is to have a knowledge of God, to, to rightly understand who He is. This term here is hagiazo. It means to, to set apart, to, 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 to set apart as, as holy, to that which is distinct. It's connected with other words that we have in the New Testament, doxazo, which means to glorify, gelio, which means to bless, hoopso, which means to lift up or to exalt. We understand here that God is 
distinct from his creation. He is distinct from all that he has made. He is altogether different. Have you ever considered this? Sometimes we speak of God's attributes, and we speak of God's attributes many times in the, the negative, and I don't mean that we're being negative, that the term negative has a negative connotation. But we're not being negative, but we speak of God's attributes in, from a negative perspective. Think of this. We say infinite. Well, what are we saying? We're saying God is not finite. We're not really saying what He is. We're, we're saying what He is not. He's not finite. We are finite. We, we take up a particular time and space, but, but he, is, he, is, he is not finite. He, he is infinite. He is immutable. Well, what are we saying? We're saying God does not change. He's not, he's not mutable. He's not like you and I. Again, we're not making a positive declaration there. We're saying what He is not. We're saying He is immense. Another one, we're saying He is impassable. Okay? He does not have emotions. He is not changed from the outside like we are. And we make these statements about God because this is the best we can do to communicate. This is the best we can do to understand the greatness of God because we see things in our life through what we have experienced and what we have the ability to understand, what we have the capacity to understand. And God is great. God is the only one who fully understands God. And God is described in ways that are all together different from us. There is a great creature and creator distinction that is communicated here. He is not like us. He is distinct from us. The people in the Old Testament, they were called to reverence the name of God. They were called to speak of Him as distinct. They were not called to speak of Him in just a mere casual way. Leviticus 22, 31 to 33, so you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord. He is distinct, and as he speaks of himself, we see this again in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. Therefore, I say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will show that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. It is not a small thing, to profane the name of God. God shares with us within the Scriptures these names of Himself. He shares with us within the Scriptures His attributes because this is important. This is something that matters. This is not to be a casual thing and a, a small thing. Consider this. Consider those that are, are slandered in some way, that, that have been defamed in, in some way. And there are lawsuits that are allowed for that. One whose name has been slandered is able to take someone else to court and sue them for damages that they have received. Now, why is this practice allowed? Why is someone permitted to take someone to court and to sue them for defamation? It's because you're defaming the name of another 
before someone, that person comes around someone else, there are already preconceived ideas that they are coming to about that person. And if they are not true, if you have spoken lies about that person, that you are dishonoring that person. You are defaming their name. And the person begins to think about something about that person that's not, in fact, true. And none of us would want to be defamed ourselves. None of us would want to be slandered before other people. But oh, consider the danger. Consider how much more significant it is to defame the name of God, to, to profane the name of God, to attribute to God that which is not true of God, to make God like one who is not God. We must be mindful in our speech. We must be considerate in how we talk and into what we say, that what we say about God is, is actually true. Great, great harm has been done by those who mean well but spoke wrong. Great harm has been done by those that had great zeal but lacked knowledge. We must be mindful about the name of God. We must be mindful about hallowing His name, that we must speak things that are true, that things that are right. We must not be creative. We must not, we must not try to be God for God. God has declared Himself in these particular ways, and we must stay within these boundaries. We, we, we must see. We must see that there is a distance between God and us. And that distance is there because He is creator and we are creature. And there's much that we, we don't understand. And we could go through the many passages of Scripture where the writers are even pondering why God does what God does or how God is out as God is. We have but just to trust in God, to trust in what He has revealed to us, to trust in what we know to be true, to trust in what He has even shown us. There's a degree of experience that is even here that is affected that you are someone that has been changed regardless of what you walk through and difficulty that you go through in your life, regardless of as you are there pondering why is this happening at this time in this way and it's legitimate to ask that question. You can remember what God has done. You can remember the, the love that the Lord has shown to you if you are in Christ that the creator of the world has clothed himself in flesh and, and dwelt amongst us, has lived amongst us, has died on your behalf, dear Christian. You can trust even in that we must be those that hallow his name. Must not be those that profane his name. We must reverence his name. And this must be lived out as well. We see that declared even in the third commandment that to take on the name of a follower of God, to take on the name of, of Christian, and to live in a way that is contrary to that is not a hallowing of the name of God, is not a, a reverence of the name of God. It's to be casual. It, it's, it's really interesting that in this culture, when people think of a violation of the third commandment, it is almost always using the name of God in, a, in, a, in a, the form of a swear word, in, in the way of a, a curse word in some way. And there is no question 
that that would be a violation of the third commandment, to, to throw God's name around like it's a swear word. None of you would want someone to use your name in that way. You would not want someone to use your name as a curse word. And so it's terrible to use the Lord's name, but that's not primarily how we see a violation of the third commandment uh, declared in the Scriptures. It's primarily one who is declaring to be a child of God, one who is declaring to be one of God's people and is living in a way that is direct violation to us. God speaks of Himself within His Word because He desires for His people to know truths about Him. God desires for you to know these truths about Him, for you to understand His names, His attributes, to understand what He has shared about Himself. There's a, a hallowing of His name. There is so much conversation nowadays, and I say especially every time something happens in the Middle East, there people get out their charts People become concerned over, well, the end is going to be here, or who is the Antichrist? And there's speculation now over who is going to rise up. And, and all the speculation that is there about the end times and these, these different views of, of millennium, and I'm in no way, uh, I have my own opinions on these things, most definitely. There's no question about that. But the reality is that Christ is going to return, and there's not going to be any conversation about that. You're not going to be sitting around in heaven. You're not going to be in glory asking yourself, well, is there going to be a premillennial reign? Is, there going to be, is it all millennial or is it going to be postmillennial? The questions will not be asked. The conversations will not be had. Christ will return and all will be declared, all will be known. But you will spend all of eternity growing in a greater and greater knowledge of God. That is what you will spend eternity doing, growing in a greater knowledge of who God is and understanding God as He's declared Himself in the Scriptures, as He's displaying Himself through the work of Christ, as He declares Himself even there in glory in the New Jerusalem. And you ponder all that He's done through the work of the church through all of those years. Those are the things that you will be growing in. Because as we, we said, God is infinite. And we are but finite, even our glorified state. We are still finite. We, are, we will not be infinite. We will live for eternity, but we are not eternal. We have not always existed. And so the only one who knows God fully is God. And you are one who will grow in a greater knowledge of who God is throughout eternity. We must trust God in what He has given to us, what He has shown to us, even in our ignorance, even in trial, even in difficulty, going to the Lord in prayer and trusting in who He is and what He has declared about Himself. It says in Hebrews eleven six, without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him. There is a, a faith that is required in, in trusting in what God has revealed and trusting God in our circumstances and trusting God even in going to Him during times of prayer. And this includes going to Him in prayer with this knowledge and this understanding of His holiness and His greatness and His distinctiveness and reflecting on the ways in which He has shown Himself to us as eminence and way in which He, he works with us in our lives. There's also a 
an existence of this just in the awareness of our lives. And as we're, we're living, there is an awe of God, a distinct awe of God that must be there. Do you stand in awe of God? Do you read of the pages of Scripture? Do you read of His greatness? Do you, do, do you read the, the beginning words in Scripture, in the beginning God? Just to pause on those words. In the beginning God. Before anything was, God was. Before anything came into being, God already existed. God has always existed. Of the time you could ponder even upon such a phrase and the ways in which it's so applicable to you even now and the struggles that you may walk through and the struggles that you may experience. For you have one who is outside of those and one who cares for you and has shown his love to you. Have you not seen that, dear Christian? Have you not seen the ways in which God has shown his love to you and that while you were yet sinners, Christ died on your behalf? Luther's great catechism says this regarding hallowing God's name. How is it that God's name is hallowed amongst us when our life and doctrine are truly Christian? There is a unity that is here. There is a connection between what we believe and, and what we are living out. There is a consistency in, in what you believe J.C. Ryle says this, We declare our heartfelt desire that God's character and attributes be made known and honored and glorified by all His intelligent creatures. Think about that, friends. Just ponder this reality. Of all of the creatures that God made on this earth, of all of the animals that are there. I, 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 love, I love dogs. We just got a new dog. Her name is Millie. She is a sweet little dog. She is a golden retriever poodle mixed with a German shepherd. And those are the second, third, and fourth most intelligent dogs. This is a very intelligent dog. This is a very lovable dog. I am affectionate toward this dog. This dog does not know about God. And all of the dog's intelligence, dog has gone so far as to actually open a door with a doorknob. That's how intelligent this little creature is. She knows not God. She has not the ability to consider God, to, to, to think about God. But you do. God has made you special. God has made you distinct. God has made you different from every other creature in the world apprehend God. You can know God. You can learn about God. You don't even need the Bible to know about God. You have the ability to walk out into the creation and see the law of God displayed. People without Bibles make laws in their cultures against stealing, against murder, against lying. These are things that are self-declared. People in all places Though they do not recognize God rightly many times, they do know that God exists. The Scriptures go so far as to say that all men know God exists. All men see the law of God, and that is true because all men will give an account for how they live their lives. No one will be able to say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know you exist. No one will be able to say, I wasn't aware of your law that I violated it. No, God made you special, dear friend. God made you, you distinct. 
God made you one who can see his glory in his handiwork. One who is made in his image. He has made you that you would hallow him. That you would reverence and respect his name. That you would know about him. That you can grow in your knowledge of him. That you would, be, that you would glorify him. And it's this way because this is what is best for you. You were made to live in communion with God. You were made to exist in right relationship with God. That's how God made humans initially. That's how they were made. They were made to dwell with God, to be amongst God, to, to interact with Him. Distinct, different, but one who is intelligent, one who can apprehend God, one who can worship God. It is sin that damaged this. It is sin that, that, that caused that great separation between man and God, that, that broke that relationship, that violation of God's law. That God's law that is a good thing, that, was, that, that is given to man from the very character of God because that is how man is designed to live. Please see God's law that way. Don't, don't see God's law as that which is inconvenient, that which you just find to be difficult, that which is getting in the way of you living your best life and having the most fun. See it as God loving you and showing it to you that you could know, know his will. And we see his law and we can see the ways in which we, we, we break his law. And God has, has blessed us with our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus was given to his people as the one who would represent them, as the one who would take upon himself the fullness of the consequences of their sins. Christ fulfilled the law in every way on behalf of his people, that his people would gain the inheritance, would gain the blessing of his perfect obedience to the law of God and Christ took upon himself the fullness of the consequences of sin. That it may not fall upon his people, so even God, your friend, your Christian, in his discipline of you, he, he is disciplining you. He's not, he's not passing judgment on you. He's not bringing his wrath upon you. He's, he's caring for you as a, a father for a son, as a parent for, for a child, as one who is in the family of God. That is my question for you, dear friend, as well. Are you one who has been changed? Are, are you one who has come to Christ? Have you seen your sin? Have you seen the greatness of it and seen your, your insufficiency, your inability to rightly keep his law? There is grace for you in Christ Jesus. If you will but come, if you will but trust in him, if you will but repent of your sin and believe upon Christ, there is grace upon grace. And your friends, it's not just in glory by and by after I die. God has, Christ has come that you can have eternal life, that you can have life, that you can live life to its fullest. And that eternal life that Christ gives to you by grace and through faith is not merely for the time when you die, but it's for right now. That what you do in this life as one who has been made in the image of God, as one whom God has given the ability to know who he is and understand him, 
to grow in a greater knowledge that you can live eternally now, that what you do now can have eternal purpose and significance, and He will change you, and He will make you a new person. A few comments and application in regard to reverencing the name of God, hallowing the name of God. It should be hallowed first and foremost here within the church. We must remember this is a a corporate prayer, that that Christ is giving this as one that is, is prayed. It can be prayed individually. It's very much of a model, though, is what we have, and it's we, we must first and foremost hallow His name here within the church. There must be a reverence for God as we gather in worship, as we worship God. We must worship God as though He is one who is not like us. There must be a distinction that is there. And the way we determine how we should worship God is based upon what His Word says. What does the Word say about how God is to be worshiped? That is what we must use to determine what worship actually is. Secondly, we ourselves individually, we must reverence the name of God. God has shown Himself to you. He has displayed His glory to you here within the creation and here within His Word, and most especially there through Christ Jesus that has died on your behalf. We must reverence His name. And thirdly, we must be in prayer for those who know not the name of the Lord, that they would reverence the name of God. That we're going to pray here in a little bit in this, come to the point, it's going to say, your kingdom come, and the work of God is coming through the hearts of men at this time, and the changing of them, and we could pray, as Paul even prays for his brothers, we can pray for their conversion, for the change in their lives, for reverence of God, for those who know them not, and fourthly, we can pray that God will rightly bring forth His judgment on those who do not reverence His name, that God would ultimately be glorified. And it's true, dear friends. All of you will glorify God in one way or the other. You will glorify God in your sin falling upon Christ, in Christ taking it on your behalf, or you will glorify God through His righteous wrath falling upon you. And your eternity depends on where you live where you trust, where you believe. So that's our call, that you would trust in Christ, that you would believe upon Him, and that, dear friends, dear Christians, that we would be hallowing His name in what we think about God, in what we say about God, in how we live our lives, most especially here and as we go to the Lord in prayer, that we would be believing about God what He says about Himself. We'd be trusting these things and believing upon Him. Let's pray.